funny thing happened tonight. Did I tell you that we have a bidet in the master bathroom? I feel like you did tell me, but I'm still fascinated by it. The six-year-old discovered it tonight. Oh. And he loves it. podcast. I am your host, Danny Paul. With me in the Bob Media Studios is the myth, the man, the legend, the loather, Leon Coventry, ladies and gentlemen. Leon. Danny. Man, I feel like I haven't seen you for weeks. Wait, it has been weeks. Well, that's why. It has been weeks. We took a couple of weeks off, recharged the batteries. You went to go see a show, I believe. I went to go see Hamilton. Did you like it? Uh, it's my third time seeing it ah, and okay. I went to LA, which that was the first time I've ever been, uh, in LA during this pandemic and they are in a whole different level than Were you Orange County assaulted with mask regulations. Yeah. Well, we, when we got there, I, I had a feeling that LA was hardcore, but I, I grabbed our vaccine cards before we left, Smart. you know, just, just as a, just in case. And if it was no card, no entry, and wow. they made you wear masks the whole time. Uh, show's always great. I mean, it's one of the, one of the better musicals of our time for sure. It's just Hamilton in this one, not a fan. All the other ones, okay. I think Aaron Burr nailed it, but Hamilton, he took too many liberties with the with the way uh, he came off, and I didn't like it. And uh, Triple B didn't like it either. Did so. you see the original on Disney Plus? Yes, and day it came out, we were psyched. That was that was the final hurrah of Lin Manuel Miranda. Mm-hmm. He crushed it. I did talented. Yeah. And that new uh, cartoon movie on Netflix, Vivo, highly, highly recommended. Great yeah. music. And it's Lin Manuel. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's the uh, that's the mermaid one, right? Nope. 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 That's Luca. Oh, that's Luca. This one is about a Cuban monkey. Huh. Uh, and he's making his way to Miami to fulfill ah. a promise. That's pretty good. Good to know. Good to know. You still can't beat Moana. It's I think Moana's timeless. Pretty good. That that and I love the accents and Brave all day long. Oh yeah. Brave. <laughs> well, we don't have our other vice host tonight. Mr. Jones is having some connection problems. So we're gonna go on without him. What is your brown for this evening, sir? You know what? I'm actually disappointed that Mr. Jones didn't make it because I picked this one specifically for him. Uh, this one is Redwood Empire, mm. uh, the Lost Monarch blend of straight whiskeys made in Sonoma County, California. It's uh, very different uh, than a lot of the bourbons I typically drink, especially since they make it here in California. But, you know, Mr. Jones being the wino that he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, loves the the Napa and Sonoma area. I thought I'm going to do this in honor of him, and he didn't even uh, get get on the interwebs to to see this beautiful bottle of bourbon. It's pretty good, actually. I would recommend yeah. it. 
Jerk. Something she grabbed. Well, shame on him. But it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good bottle of brown. And I'm listening to you, Danny. I'm I'm coming out of my comfort zone. I'm I'm moving oh. away from Kentucky, but I will not move to different browns. Kentucky. I'm still going, still going right. whiskey. Spread your wings. Spread your wings. In another adventure of Around the Brown, I have decided upon a French spirit tonight. France, known for uh, cognac, crepes, croissants, and kissing, actually produces a fairly good brown <laughs> called Belvoyer. It is a triple malt. It is a scotch. Hmm. And I got to say, French scotch, oxymoronic as it may sound, is fairly good. You know, I- France is beautiful. Their food is outstanding, arguably some of the best in the world. Their chefs are the best. There's no doubt they're one of the best wine producers, best sommeliers on the planet. But God, I just don't get along with the people. (laughs) Well, you as a native German are not supposed to. Is that correct? That is correct. (laughs) And I'm American. That that doesn't doesn't help either. American doesn't mean anything. Although one of my one of my better friends in college was French and uh, good dude, good dude. Yeah, but see, he's he was the only one, one one good export. Yeah, There's nothing against the French. French perfectly fine. Oh, I heard a ding. Shall we uh, take a journey to the land of make believe and see who it is? Welcome <laughs> to the bottle. Ding ding ding, bing bong, and it is. Mr. Jones has decided to join us. Let's give Just him the requisite time. 15 to 20 minutes of audio trouble as he figures out his setup. <laughs> For those of you at home, you can't hear us right now because he's logging on. <laughs> Danny's on fire. On fire. All right, let's talk about Brown. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, Holmes, uh, where they hiding the scotch? What about, um, brown? That's code for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Could I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? Tonight's brown. We're going to visit Brain Freeze. Alcohol-infused ice cream, my friends. It's about time. It is about fucking time. Summer, adulthood, the perfect Venn diagram. The article comes to us courtesy of Bloomberg. Brain freeze, no more sober Sundays. Thriving startups across the country are finding ways to get the bite of alcohol into the most innocent of desserts. Tipsy Scoop is one such addition to this international ice cream market valued at $65.8 billion in 2020. Revenue for the segment of the market dedicated to alcohol-infused ice cream, which was estimated at more than $335 million in 2019, is expected to exceed $450 million by 2025. Can wow. I get off this? That's the number one question I get, said Tipsy Scoop founder Melissa Tabs. Specialty flavors include whiskey-infused dark chocolate with salted caramel and a mango margarita sorbet, punched up with tequila and orange liqueur. They can reach 5%. Alcohol by volume. She goes on to say, alcohol or adding booze is not supposed to knock you off your feet. It's to enhance the flavor. 
not all manufacturers agree. At Clementine's Naughty and Nice Creamery in St. Louis, Tamara Keefe concocts flavors such as Manhattan with bourbon and sweet vermouth that can hit 18% alcohol by weight. Too little alcohol? What's the point? She asks. Thoughts on this, boys? Yes. I Look, alcohol is delicious when it's specific kinds. And if you're, if you're combining two of my favorite things, ice cream, which is awesome, and alcohol, which is awesome, but I do need the bite. Like I want, I want to eat that ice cream in it and then be a little bit dizzy afterwards. So I'm, I'm on, uh, was it Clementine? You said Keith mm-hmm. or Clementine? Yeah. I'm on, I'm on team Clementine. Got to have some bite to it. Clementine's naughty and nice creamery in St. Louis. Keith calls mm-hmm. Clementine's the first micro creamery in the country. Think microbrewery for beer, but for ice cream. Since then it's racked up almost 5 million in sales. It's not that far of a leap from, I mean, I'm sure you've had those little chocolate mini bottles of booze with, you know, you bite off the top, you drink the little bit of booze they have in there. Yeah, a little bit of shot Uh, or some chocolate. Yeah. So I think this is a a logical next step and one that I'm really sad I've missed out on at this point. There's uh, Brooklyn. Uh, Columbia, South Carolina. There's uh, a joint in Montclair, California, in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Portland, of course, Portland. Uh, the variety of liquors coming out in cities is mind-blowing. For ice cream makers, ice cream is a platform and a way to partner with micro distilleries to tell stories. Here, here, sir. Danny, are you a person that would prefer to make your own steak? or go out and get a great steak? Um, that's an interesting question because in the realm of steak and ice cream, I do like to make it myself, mm. but there are things that I would certainly like others to make for me. Um, knowing how to make a good steak, having taken uh, kind of master classes and read a bunch of books and experimented, uh, I consider myself a journeyman at good steak grilling. So when you go out to a restaurant and you pay you know, $50 for a steak and it shows up and you go, really? Yeah. You could do better. I could have done that. Yep. Uh, What I want to get, and I've talked to Mr. Jones about this is pit boss makes a little $400 vertical wood pellet smoker oven. Mm -hmm. And there is a masterclass by that guy, uh, AJ Lincoln, who does, I've, I've, I've seen it. Yeah. You know that guy? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm leaning towards it because, as you know, once you hit your 40s and you have children, you can either A, smoke meats, mm-hmm. or B, engage heavily in World War II trivia. <laughs> I decided well, to lean towards World War II. I'm with, I'm with you. The, the smokers, you know me. I, I love to have uh, the Traeger on, and I we try to do something at least once or twice a month. But... The uh, the big win this year was when I got the pizza oven that also feeds off the same pellets, and that that's badass. Oh, making making homemade pizzas. The reason I brought this up though, Danny, is uh, Mr. Jones actually got us an ice cream maker, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get any of these ice creams you're talking about, but I sure do want to try to make one myself now. So I'm going to give that a try. I made a rum chata derivative 
based on one of his recipes. And then I made an orange sherbet that failed miserably because I tried to use monk fruit instead of cane sugar. Um, fun fact, monk fruit does not crystallize the same way cane sugar does. So it will not give you ice cream. What you'll end up getting is a really awesome smoothie, similar to mm. the haiju concoction that we experimented with in high school. Oh my gosh, that's a pull. That's a pull as well. God damn, God, I choose. How do we survive that? Oh, they were so delicious. It, it does take a certain level of chemistry. So, you know, as you dabble in the world of ice cream, you start to learn about textures and, uh, you know, quantities of air and, and such. But uh, to answer your question, I like when somebody else prepares fish. Now, I know you're a fish guy and I know you know how to yeah. do fish. So if I were to get one of these smoker ovens, that's the first thing I would try is I would try and get a nice brick of salmon or maybe some ahi or like a, like a fish steak, like a steak of fish, not a steak of cow. That's probably mm-hmm. what I would do. Beyond yeah. that, you get into the, the 16 hour briskets and all that. Yeah. I, I would also recommend uh, pork loins or something like that. They're easy. They're one one hour max, hour and a half max, boom, you're done. It's a good, it's a good place to start, and they're awesome. So, but then yeah, you got to kick it up in the pork shoulder, and that's like six to ten hours, and then you get into briskets, and that's twenty four hours. So, you got to work your way up. Any long, low and slow pull, like I have tried and failed multiple times to do ribs. Mm-hmm. And it seems the best way to do it for that pull it off the bone is still, you know, boil it in an oven because that, that low and slow is difficult to do at least for the equipment that I have. And so I really enjoy a good rack of ribs at a restaurant, but as mm-hmm. far as like slabs of animal flesh, I can usually handle that myself. Yeah. But the concept We're, of an 18% ice cream, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's kind of day drinking, right? Yeah, that's worth giving it a try. Good good story. I like this. It's uh, something I'm going to give it a try now. Mr. Jones, you got any uh, thoughts on this? Well, we got a few minutes left in the segment. I missed a lot of what you guys are saying, but um, I did catch a little bit of it. Uh, booze ice cream is one of my favorite things to make. Um, and I really, really enjoy kind of getting creative with different kind of ways to take rums and bourbons and creams and so forth. I'm lactose intolerant. So I find a different way to kind of work it in there where, you know, you go with oat milk or other kind of alternatives so that I can enjoy them because these are things I can't consume. They do not agree Mm -hmm. with me, but um, some of your other points of low and slow ribs. I mean, my three, two, one is pretty much a winner every time. So I was just going to say three, there's, two, one. there's no other yep. better way to do ribs. Um, everyone who knows who's got a smoker or whatnot, it's a good way to do it. You can, you can do just as fine with a crock pot. And, uh, as long as you wrap them to steam them, to get them down, shut but, your mouth, shut your mouth. <laughs> do not say you just do just, just as good. Just as good. <laughs> Come on. That's it's just as good if you throw it in your dishwasher on the heat cycle. <laughs> It'll steam them up right now. Apparently, you can also do that with your dryer. No kidding. Yep. Use your, uh, use your dryer as an oven. Anyway, we digress. Uh, we're almost out of time in this segment, Mr. Jones. What is your favorite alcohol ice cream concoction? Uh, it is rum chata makes a peppermint bark where you take mm. that and you crumble mm. up 
candy canes and you sew mm-hmm. that into a peppermint vanilla ice cream with a little bit oh, of rum. Keep going. Don't you dirty slow down, down. Slow down. That's how we do it in around December time. <laughs> Go on. You're edging us with the ice cream. It's pretty good, actually. It's damn good. Food All porn, right. Isn't it? Oh, get a towel. <laughs> And it's all the time we have for boys. Thank you so much. We talked about Brown. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into headlines. News team. Assemble. And I got news for you. This one comes to us from The Guardian, July 29th, 2021. This particular story bothers me to no end. And I know that you're the resident aviation expert here, Leon. But as a person that logged 130,000 flight miles in 2019 or 2018, uh, this, this bugs me. One in five flight attendants endured a physical incident uh, in the summer of 2021. And uh, this is The Guardian, so it's a British newspaper, but this is their U.S. news segment uh, because rightfully so, they want to pay attention to this. There's a lot more coverage in this from American newspapers in terms of what the unions are demanding. Uh, the British are actually very interested in you know what, what's going on. So I wanted to give some focus to this one because we've all traveled. We've all traveled for business. We all understand that you got to get from point A to point B, and we're all in a flying bus with wings, whether the seats are nice or the food are nice or not. It's You're in a captive environment. <clears throat> I wore a mask before all this when I flew internationally because you're in a, you're in a floating tube with recycled air. I thought it was a good thing. Um, the article begins, nearly one in five flight attendants say they have gotten into a, quote, physical incident, unquote, this year with a passenger. And the union is calling for criminal prosecution of people who act upon planes. Union survey supports what airlines and federal officials have been saying. There has been a surge in unruly passengers this year who sometimes become violent. Most common trigger is passengers who refuse to follow the federal requirement that they wear face masks during flights, according to the survey by the Association of Flight Attendants. Alcohol is the next largest factor, with flight delays also playing a role, according to the union. The union said nearly 5,000 flight attendants responded to its survey from 25 June through 14 July, and 85% said they have dealt at least once this year with an unruly passenger, of which 17% reported experiencing a physical incident. We're talking fisticuffs here, like they're laying their hands on flight attendants. And something about that, aside from being morally wrong, is just a new level of stupid. You're Mm -hmm. stuck on a plane. What do you think is going to happen? You're not going to escape. There's no ducking out and avoiding it. They have radios. They're going to call the cops. The cops are going to be waiting for you. Uh, what do you guys think about this? Well, uh, yes, I'm the resident aviation guy, but you know, being in the front is not the same as being in the back. And I would say that I also, I've logged a lot of hours in the back with business travel, and I cannot stand these care these characters that everyone's got the when you take off like literally wheels up you get that guy who needs to get up and go to the bathroom <laughs> like immediately like hey dick 
Uh, do you, every time I'm like, the, do you see the seatbelt sign? We're, we're not even done climbing out of a thousand feet, you piece of shit. There's always that guy that before the plane stops at the gate, stands up, grabs his backpack and runs up the aisle like a piece of shit. But now we have that guy or that girl, that Karen, pick which one ever you want, you want to say, that is antagonizing these poor people that, you know, quite frankly, for the last year, have been putting their lives at risk because they don't know what this pandemic's about. Nobody really did. Like, honestly, we're still guessing left and right. Pick your pick your side politically. It doesn't really matter. But the fact is they're in a tube hurling through space at 500 and 600 miles an hour with a bunch of people pissed off who could barely breathe. And these dickheads take it out on them. And they just, I just hope they end up on the no fly list forever and, and never get to fly because they should lose all of their privileges with that, with that being, I mean, have you seen this video of the guy they had to duct tape uh, to the seat recently? That's been going around. It's viral. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it, it makes you laugh if it weren't so fucking tragic. Right. I mean, the guys in, you know, who my dad is, you know, who my dad is like your mom doesn't even know who your dad is. But anyway, he, uh, he, he they, they <laughs> duct taped him to the seat and they couldn't even get out. Uh, and then they, I think they ended up like pressing charges on the flight attendants who had to restrain this guy mid flight with, with the duct tape because it was cruel and unusual. I don't, I don't know the, all the details, but it was along those lines that charges were pressed against the people that had to duct tape this dickhead. And if you watch the video, you're like, this guy was out of control, unruly. And I, I just, I'm, I'm get unhappy when there's not a, air marshal on board that can you know zap these people and knock them out the article goes on to say such cases are usually filed by local prosecutors the faa lacks authority to pursue criminal charges the faa this week uh, said airlines have reported more than 3600 cases of unruly passengers this year figures were not kept prior years nearly three-fourths involve masks the agency has announced dozens of proposed fines the largest being fifty-two thousand dollars for a man who tried to open the cockpit door and then struck a flight attendant on a Delta Airlines flight in December. And apparently he just got a slap on the wrist for that, other than 52 grand, which the article doesn't say whether or not he actually had to pay that. Uh, the article goes on to say, some say they were cursed or yelled at. Some said they were followed through the airport and harassed after the flight ended. Represents flight attendants from United Alaska Spirit and several small carriers Airlines have banned a few thousand people for the duration of the mask rule, and the Federal Aviation Administration has announced proposed fines against dozens of people. But Union President Sarah Nelson said more passengers should face criminal prosecution. I think yes. so. Yes. Criminal. Uh, yeah. there, is, uh, there is a standing rule now that says if you're drunk in the terminal, they don't let you on the plane at all. But again, there are conversations we can have about poor customer service. We can talk about how the flight attendants are past their prime. They're old, they're cranky. We can, we can have all those conversations, but that goes within the realm of a product that has any elasticity in the market. You got to get on a plane and there's only so many planes to get on. So we can have that conversation. But again, you as the passenger have to understand you're trapped in this plane. 
It's not like a train where you can get up and walk around or even get off. It's not like a bus. You're there. So from the time you board to the time you get off, you're stuck there. And I don't know if it's the social contract or if it's just the reality of the environment that you're in. You're stuck there. You chose to do this. You chose to buy a ticket. You chose to be in this environment. And if you don't like the way that the airline does its thing, then, you know, in a free market, you should be able to go to a different airline. But the idea Mm -hmm. of blaming the flight attendants for your own projected anxieties, I think is just the height of, I don't even want to say idiocy. I want to do something even, what's, what's a, what's another mean word for stupid. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Asinine is a good one. Moronic. I mean, they're just, out of control these these people and they they shouldn't they know what they're getting into it's almost like they amp themselves up to go in there and pick a fight who doesn't know at this point you have to wear a mask on an airplane i mean i gotta fly here in three weeks i hate wearing masks hate it i'm wearing a mask during the airplane i'm not gonna bitch anybody about it because i know what i signed up for so if you knew you signed up for it that is not your place to make your political stand. There's other venues, but it certainly isn't at this poor person that in a lot of cases is, you know, making just over minimum wage to serve you drinks and keep you alive in an emergency. And you're going to, you're going to uh, unload on this poor person that probably has their sleep schedule all over the map. They're working their ass off right now. I, these people, they just need to be drug out in the street and kicked right in the teeth. That's what I feel like. One good (laughs) slap across the face. Talk about killing the messenger. Mr. Jones, any thoughts on the topic? Dynamite drop in, Danny. (laughs) Still having audio issues. Good feel for you, buddy. Anyway, that wraps up headlines. Oh, this is, I'm really enjoying this. Let's go to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. This one has a, a very serious kind of connotation in it. So we like to laugh at the crank file because we find absurd things that we want to talk about. This one, I mean, there, there, there are some, some serious ramifications for the kind of level of what the fuck that comes out of this. This one comes to us from the journal Nature. Um, This article is dated 13th, August, 2021. Autocorrect errors in Microsoft Excel still creating genomics headache. Despite geneticists being warned about spreadsheet problems, 30% of published papers contain mangled gene names and supplementary data. So before we get into the actual gist of the article, let me give you a breakdown here. When working with empirical data of a scientific nature, you have to quantify, you have to develop insights and you have to pull the data, summarize it and publish a paper. The paper then gets digested by peers, typical of the scientific method. Other peers can contribute, they can give their weighted opinion. And then over time, the subject is known as peer reviewed. After it's peer reviewed, it's published in a journal and then it becomes scientific dogma of which other papers can be built upon or other papers can refute the data. And that is hashtag science. The challenge we run into here is not with the accuracy of the data. It's with the tool in which they compile the data, which is Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. 
And the challenge we're running into here is when you're dealing with a Latin-based nomenclature for genetics, autocorrect fucks everything up. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. 2016 analysis found that 20% of papers featuring gene names had errors created by spreadsheet autocorrect functions, but a bigger survey now finds the proportion is up to 30%. Since 2014, the number of papers with errors has increased significantly. The problem was first like documented in 2004. <laughs> it's a feature you can turn off. These are our scientists that are out saving our lives, and they can't figure out how to turn off autocorrect, is what, we're, what, what this story is about. But continue. The problem was first documented in 2004 when Barry Zeberg, a molecular pharmacologist at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm just going to stop there. Barry, a molecular pharmacologist at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. There are, to the third power, smart person in that sentence. Yes. And his colleagues warned of changes to gene symbols <laughs> when processing genomics data. In 2016, Mark Zeman and his colleagues at the Baker IDA Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia, quantified the problem. They found that one-fifth of papers in top genomics journals contained gene name conversion errors in Excel spreadsheets published as supplementary data. These data sets are frequently accessed and used by other geneticists, so errors can be perpetuated and distort further analyses. However, despite the issue being brought to the attention of researchers and steps being taken to fix it, the problem is still rife according to an updated and larger analysis led by Zeman now at Deakin University in Geelong, Australia. His team found that almost one-third of more than 11,000 articles with supplementary Excel gene lists published between 2014 and 2020 contained gene name errors. Now, if this wasn't so awfully absurd, it would be tragic. And that's why I made the crank file, because Leon popped it off earlier. You can shut off the autocorrect. You can upload those names into the library so it doesn't affect them. This, I mean, this is literally a case of a rocket scientist who doesn't know how to change a tire. That's what this is. I'm so smart that when it comes to basic things, I'm dumb. That's, that's what's going on here. Well, without those exactly checks, it. the errors can easily go unnoticed because of the volume of data in these spreadsheets. In other words, only a few people can actually understand it to read it, so no one really checks it. In 2017, the Hugo Gene Nomenclature Committee, the HGNC, which standardizes human gene names, announced that it would take the drastic measure of changing the gene symbols for commonly affected genes because community outreach efforts have failed to solve the problem. Since then, 27 gene symbols have been updated, including SEPT4, now SEPTIN4. <laughs> Come on. Come on. SEPT4 was probably being treated as a date. Mm. I don't know, guys. I mean, do we file this under what the fuck did you think was going to happen? I just, <laughs> I don't understand it. You know, this is definitely a case of people not being able to see the forest through the trees. Take this two the, steps uh, back. This is Take the a look. rant about nerds and how dangerous they are to society. Spot on. Uh, uh, avoid or adapt. This one. one solution is to avoid using spreadsheets, although some, such as the open source programs LibreOffice and Numeric, 
don't have the problem, spreadsheets are hard to audit. If there's a problem, it's not readily apparent where the problem happened because there's no record of what steps the software took. Some computational biologists use scripted computer languages such as Python and R. Those don't autocorrect gene symbols and researchers can trace the source of errors. However, they require users to learn the computer language so that they can write code to analyze it. For those persisting with problematic software, Siemens recommends a quick check before sharing or publishing data. Sorting data by gene symbol can bring date conversion errors to the top. As a journeyman coder and a Microsoft Excel teacher, this makes my head want to explode, <laughs> this article. Um, I want to pause here for all of the Browners out there. If you're wondering, why are we listening to this? Every time we do genetics research, it's going to be based on something else. So the term standing on the shoulders of giants applies to everybody from Pythagoras all the way to Isaac Newton, all the way to Stephen Hawking. Everybody in the scientific community tends to base their research on what came before. So if you have an error that's propagated 11x beyond to the next delta, whatever, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with an error that is now spread so rapidly that the data has become polluted to N, to the nth degree. And so the danger of this is there's a lot of really, really smart people that are doing all this important work to try and understand the genome and autocorrect could be fucking up everything. And the fact that this is an issue with one out of three genomics research papers makes my head spin. I think in Frozen 2, one of the best lines and most thoughtful lines was, what was it that you always say all off? Oh, that technology will be both our savior and our doom? Yeah, that's what's going on here. <laughs> nice pull, Leon. You went to Disney. Well, you know, there's a parenting section coming up, I'm sure. Well, in the spirit of that, with a little bit of time we have left in this segment, Leon suggested we find out what our autocorrect fails of the decade were. Yes. So we took this one to go to BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed.com forward slash Andrew Ziegler forward slash autocorrect fails of the decade. Number one, on January 27th, 2011, this mom asked for a response to her boner. Respond <laughs> to my boner. <laughs> a month later, those parents divorced. Your mom and I are going to divorce next month. What? Why? Please call me. I wrote Disney. The phone changed it. We're going to Disney. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm fighting with Mike again. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's bad. I think it is this time. He just drove off with mom's corpse. What? Mom's corpse? Ah, no. Her Camaro. <laughs> Yo, I'm so horny. I need a dong right now. Horny. Hungry. Hungry for dong. Dog. Dog. Hungry. Dong, not dong. Dog. 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 Cucumber. Frit. I give up. <laughs> Dad, do you have any idea where my diploma is? It's in your mother's anus. 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 Um, it's in her anus. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, upstairs in her house in storage. Wow. Okay. I'll search mom's anus. Thanks, Dad. 
I love when you try to correct your autocorrect and it's still autocorrected. It. <laughs> you should bring the fan up and fuck me in. Fuck, I meant, I meant tuck. I choose the former. <laughs> <laughs> oh, autocorrect. <laughs> Late news. Grandma is homosexual. Okay. Homer hot lips. Hot tulips. I'm getting fisted now. Frustrated. Grandma is home from hospital. <laughs> oh, anyway, check it out. Great. The list goes on and on and on and on. We only gave you a small sampling of the 25 available autocorrects. So for anybody that's had to deal with autocorrect, you know what a pain in the ass it is. So a little bit of sympathy goes out to our genomics researchers you probably have advanced degrees and many, many more years of school than us. So we probably have no right to criticize you, but one out of but. three of you are fucking up. <laughs> uh, that's the crank file. Well done. I like that. Let's go on Which to Leon's sweet. favorite because Florida. Florida. This episode's because Florida comes to us from the Miami Herald, updated August 10th, 2021. Keys tourists fight over women in a wheelbarrow, and then somebody bit off a piece of ear. <laughs> that's the headline. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that one out. Just marinate on that. Headline. Those of you that need to pause the podcast, please do so. That's the clickbait. <laughs> Okay. The article begins, a bunch of friends were on vacation this week in the Florida Keys, but during an early morning argument at a fancy resort just outside Key West city limits, the party apparently went south. Make that deep south. One man began shoving several friends to the ground and then used his teeth as a weapon, according to Monroe County Sheriff's Office. James Lynn Williams, 45, of Port St. Lucie, bit off part of one friend's ear during the scrap that happened around 2.30 a.m. Thursday. Williams, who was taken to the county jail in Stock Island, faces charges of aggravated battery and domestic battery by strangulation, which are both felonies. He also is looking at two additional counts of misdemeanor battery. The 28-year-old man on the receiving end of the bite was left bloody and without a piece of his ear when deputies arrived. He told them the group was staying at Ocean's Edge Resort, Marina Key West, when one woman passed out. Williams placed the passed out woman in a wheelbarrow meant for hotel maintenance crews to use and was pushing her back to a room when things took a turn. Williams began dumping beer on her while insulting. <laughs> oh, Florida. Oh, Florida. <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> Williams began dumping beer on her while insulting her, said Sheriff's Office spokesman Adam Leonard. The 28-year-old said he intervened, telling Williams he was being disrespectful. Williams got angry, and when his friends tried to calm him down, he shoved one woman to the ground, deputies said. Williams shoved another woman to the ground when she tried to make peace by getting between the two men. Williams then pushed the male victim to the ground and began choking him. The male victim stated that Williams bit part of his ear off while others were trying to separate them. Williams walked away and more deputies were called in along with a canine unit to track him down on the resort property. He didn't want to speak with deputies. 
He may have burned some bridges with his pals. On Friday morning, he remained in jail on an $80,000 bond. There were no life-threatening injuries reported. Oh, Florida. <laughs> oh, Florida. You know, it's, it's actually... <laughs> oh, well, they should have been boxers, I guess. I don't, I don't know. This... This is so wonderful of a society that we've created. Not going to beat you at 2.30 a.m., put her in a wheelbarrow and take her home. Uh-uh, she disrespected me. <laughs> I'm going to pour my beer on you. Well, that, that's the most shocking part of this entire article, that they would waste beer. Because the Floridians I know would never. I don't care if it's Natty Ice or Milwaukee's Best. They're not wasting that beer. I mean, a lot of stuff beer. happens at 2.30 in the morning on a Thursday, but aggravated battery and domestic battery by strangulation, that's, that's a push. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, Florida, thank you for that. Good that times. made me feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> we'll be right back. Let's talk about parenting. We can make kids right now. That's why we're here. It's not the years, it's the mileage. This one comes to us from Fatherly Magazine, fatherly.com forward slash parenting, former slash things boys get from parents. This one's dated July 28th, 2021. Boys still get these three things from parents that girls don't. Things are improving slowly, but gender stereotypes are still entrenched in parenting practices. Stereotypical gendered parenting differences remain entrenched in American households. In some cases, like when you're shopping for last-minute gifts, parents may simply be unaware that they're parenting daughters in ways that are different from sons. In other cases, gendered parenting may be linked to cultural norms or religious beliefs. And with so many aspects of parenting going beyond prescriptive advice to examine our own beliefs and motivations tends to unlock insights that help us become better parents. Lucky examining gender differences in parenting can help parents find balance and make meaningful changes. Boys hear more spatial language than girls. The way parents talk about objects changes depending on the gender of the child they're talking to, according to a study published in 2017 in the issue of Psychological Science by Dr. Janin Shannon Pruden and Dr. Susan Levine. After observing a diverse sample of 58 families in their homes, the researchers found that parents use more dimensional adjectives, shape terms, and words describing spatial features and properties with boys than with girls. So for example, parents are more likely to describe a ball as a little circle with curved edges to sons than they are to girls. The analysis showed that this kind of talk mattered developmentally. Gender differences in toddlers' spatial talk was tied to their parents' earlier spatial language use when they were 14 to 26 months old. Although the sex difference in the number of unique what spatial words that children hear and produce is small, it is potentially meaningful. Those children who talked more about the spatial world had better spatial skills, skills linked to achievement in science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM. So the idea is we talk to our children in specific ways based on biases that we have on what it means to be a boy or a girl. And that is propagated throughout the lifetime of the child such that by the time they reach uh, young adulthood, 
usually when puberty hits and they're starting to understand their own identity, uh, gender wise, what turns out is they've got a lifetime of conditioning from us, the parents. Thoughts on that? Gomes, you go first. I'm always first. Yeah, but I like bantering back to you. you. Um, I no, I totally, I, I totally agree. It's the whole, um, you dress a girl in pink and a boy in blue. You know, it's the idea that you gender identify at a younger age and then you also speak to them the same way and they fit roles as they grow. Now, I'm new to fatherhood and, you know, how I treat my son. So I am new to all this is, you know, you two have more experience than I do. So um, it makes sense. It's valid. Um, it's probably something you could research and, and find ways to maybe curb the way that you speak and conduct yourself in front of your kids to let them be more, in this case, scientific for girls or more theatrical for boys. So. Yeah, so they don't really give a female example. Raised. So if the male example is a little circle with curved edges, what's the female example? It's a ball. Deal with it. I mean, what's, I would have, I would have liked the dichotomy to understand it better. Leon, what's up? Mm-hmm. What? All right. So I'm trying to gather my thoughts so I don't come off like a total fucking asshole here. But I think that, listen, you have a kid. And they have little tar shits that are the worst things in the world. And then they have big shits that are like big human <laughs> shits and piss and they piss on you and they throw up on you and they completely fuck up your schedule and they completely take your life and turn it upside down and all in the name of raising them. You know what I get for that? I get to put them in whatever the fuck I want to put them in. And I, if I think it's cute, I'm going to put them in that. And that's what I get. That's my reward. So I don't give a shit <laughs> But I need to be very careful about how, how my biases are affecting my one or two year old. Of course they are. And anybody who says they're not is obnoxious and, and completely ridiculous. And I don't care what your bias is because there is no such thing as a neutral bias because that itself is a bias. Uh, that is what you are. You create a little creature that looks exactly like you. And then you're like, uh, I, I'm going to try to make it like me. That's what you do. That's what you do as a parent. That's what humans do. That's what monkeys do. That's what fish do. They all do that, right? They try to create another version of themselves and eventually you end up you know branching off and doing something different and and they become their own person and and what have you i just feel like that's our reward as a parent and you know trying to there's already so much going on in being a parent to just trying to keep this thing alive that this is something i'm just not going to worry about so that's my two cents Next segment talks about parents are more likely to roughhouse with boys. In 2017, a group of researchers led by Jennifer Mascaro published their findings of paternal behavior related to brain responses to male and female children. As part of a more extensive study on paternal caregiving, 69 heterosexual biological cohabitating fathers, one third of which were non-white, 
were observed playing with children age one or two. The research published in the journal Behavioral Neuroscience found that parents are more likely to engage in roughhousing or rough and tumble play, RTP, with their sons more than their daughters. Surprisingly, the researchers think that the underlying reason parents roughhouse with their boys is more about helping them build emotional intelligence than training them for brute physical domination. RTP involves dynamic and forceful behaviors such as tickling, poking, tumbling, which would be hostile in many circumstances and which can only be interpreted as play given the particular social context. The the researchers conclude. For this reason, it's thought to both require and entrain emotional regulation and empathy. It's worth noting that not only do boys tend to get rougher and tumble play from their parents, but that physical play also typically comes from fathers in comparison to mothers. And it appears that this type of play helps kids develop emotional flexibility and skills to regulate their emotions. Now I've seen observations of this because I have engaged in rough and tumble play with my nieces because I don't have girls. And I found that the girls love it as much as the boys do. So I'm wondering if, if that parental, I mean, I get bias has got to be the word. If that parental bias towards girls aren't supposed to do that, maybe that affects their, development or their perspective on that as they get older, because I roughhouse and tickle most of the children that I come in contact with as a form of affection. And that's who you are. And, and here's the other thing. You got two boys, Danny. I met them. They're wonderful, wonderful children. And they're nothing alike, (laughs) nothing. And what that tells me, and the same thing that Mr. Jones is going through and the same thing I have one daughter, I'll always have one daughter. That's it. We're done. And my daughter does, you know, well, I would, I wouldn't even say stereotypical, but she does treat mom very different than dad. When dad's around me, it is rough house. That's what she wants. She's like, let's go. She's boxing me. She wants to mess with me all the time. She's constantly in pushing my buttons because that's who I am. And that's how she knows she can connect with me. So I don't know that it's as much about bias, but how children want to connect with you. Do you watch, uh, I mean, we'll talk about it later too, but have you ever seen the show Ted Lasso? No, that's on my list. It's on everybody's list. Wonderful show, but there's a point in there uh, where they were t- uh, the the really cold hearted <laughs> guy in there was like had some very profound thing to say. Kids don't care what they're doing. You keep trying to parade and do these things, these Disney and and these you know princess dinners and all these things. All they really want to do is just hang out with you. They just want to be a part of your life. You take them to the office. They're just as excited as if you took them to Disneyland. They really, really are. They just want to be a part of your life. So as long as you're acknowledging that, I think the kids drive what they're going to drive. I know mine does. I know mine is going to tell me exactly what what she's going to do. I don't know. I don't have many kids to compare like you, you do, Danny, that you can have different circumstances, but I know mine calls the shots and she's going to do what she's going to do. And she's going to do what she's going to do with the, with the parent she wants to do it with. And that's how it is. And I, I, and I, I don't know that there's a bias. I think, I think where we're taking out of here is there also is a genetic bias, right? whatever that is. And I'm not even saying that genetic bias necessarily has to do with the gender of the child. 
but there is a there is a bias biological that's happening inside that says this is what they're they're going to gravitate to they're going to dra- gravitate towards pink they're going to gravitate towards tea parties or and because that's fun for them you know that's that's fun if tea parties and pink aren't fun the kid is not going to do it boy girl whatever right at that point that, that's my opinion that's how I seem to finish everything. It's either my two cents or my opinion. So, Bob, you're you're bringing up an interesting point because that segues into the final section of the article. The toys in boys' bedrooms conform to gender norms. So, how parents play differs between sons and daughters, but so do the toys parents give their kids to play with. In 2018, Dr. David McPhee cataloged toys available in 75 U.S. preschoolers' rooms. His research, published in the June 29 edition of the journal Sex Roles, found significant gender differences in what toys parents made available to boys and girls. The results were consistent with the gender typing found in prominent 1975 study by Reinhold and Cook. McPhee found that boys' rooms had 15 times more action figures than girls' rooms, as well as significantly more outer space toys, props for dramatic play that involved guns, tools, machines. Over the nearly five decades between studies, sports equipment was one of the few toy categories where the gap between what presents and kids' rooms narrowed significantly. Looking at reasons so little change has occurred, McPhee posited that as kids get older, they make requests for gender-type toys informed by experiences outside the home. He also pointed out that family income could also play a role. We speculate that low-income parents may ultimately be more concerned about whether their children have toys to play with, less focused on whether or not their children's conform, uh, less focused on whether or not their children's playthings conform to gender stereotypes. If they got money, they're going to buy whatever they can. It's difficult to break cycles that are as entrenched as gendered parenting. In addition to awareness, it also requires energy and oftentimes resources to provide countercultural environments. So in this case, do you buy a tea set for a boy? Mm. Do you buy a dart gun this is my point earlier. or a girl? Well, let me, let me ask you this your gladiator son and your NASCAR son, right? <laughs> your gladiator son is probably going to, do you buy the NASCAR son uh, Legos and yeah, I don't even know those tinker sticks where you build things and then your NASCAR son, uh, but you, but then, you know, the gladiator son, you buy him a baseball and a glove or whatever you buy if you have the ability to buy, right? This is that, that is definitely uh, something that comes out in this argument, but if you have the ability, you're going to buy what interests your kid. Sure. Early on, you're going to have a bunch of chew toys and everything. Some are pink. Okay. I'll buy that. Whatever. Cause a lot of that comes handy down, right? You know, you get a lot of, Hey, if you're having a girl, here's a bunch of pink things and some pink chew toys and, you know, whatever. But eventually you start to understand what your kid is into. And that's what you get your kid. I mean, that's what you get your kid because you want them to be excited about it. So I don't know. I don't know that. Sometimes there is such a thing as genetics that actually drive the interest of these kids. And is it so bad that sometimes that girls want to be girly girls and want to have tea sets is it so bad that boys want to be macho boys and have a glove and a ball does it necessarily have to be the parents fault that it's being shoved on them or could it be possibly that it's something that actually interests them i don't know Uh, i think what the article is getting at is that the the nature of 
gender stereotypes and the idea of what it is to be masculine versus feminine, the idea of what it is to kind of divide things by sex has a lot to do with what the parents' opinions are when they're raising the child, such that if your boy children start gravitating towards things that are pink or girly, do you as a parent stop that? Do you encourage it? Do you play Switzerland? Um, it's asking a lot of parents to evaluate their own paradigms and how those play out while at the same time taking into account how kids are influenced in school and other social settings, as well as by the media. But a growing library of research describing how boys and girls are parenting differently should in turn bring with it more tools for parents to apply what they are learning. So when my six-year-old gladiator says, that's girly, I stop him. And I say, why? And they say, because that's what girls like. And I say, okay, do you like it? No, why not? Because it's girly. I try to address that. When my nine-year-old NASCAR is interested in pink things because he likes them, I ask him, why? And he says, because I like it. And I encourage that to your point, Leon. If, it, if they like it, who cares? Let them go after it. You know, what, are you, what, right. are you, what are you worried about? What are you projecting on? What insecurities are you projecting onto your children? Because that will come home to roost no matter what. Mm. So I try and steer my kids away from, I can't do that. That's girly. I try and steer away from that. But if they are interested in things that have feminine undertones, such as pink or dolls or, you know, whatever, that's fine. No, go ahead. Go for it. Um, the way that I would conclude my thoughts on the subject is what you were saying earlier, Leon, of they do what I want to do because they want to spend time with me. Yeah. They're going to be interested in football and explosions and race cars. And they're going to be interested in that stuff because dad is because mm -hmm. they want to spend time with dad. Mm -hmm. So if, if dad were interested in crochet and um, hot glue gun and crafting, then that's what the kids would be into. So it's important to understand that your biases are going to be reflected on your children such that the kids are a reflection of you. I mean, they're going to look at you as stereotypes for what to expect in mates, as well as what it means to be a man or woman based on who you are. Mm -hmm. It's not always a bad thing though, right? You know, people say, uh, you know, your biases are influencing your children. Yeah. Just be aware of it. Right. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean, uh, you know, you, you can't not control it. You're still a human. You still have biases. You, you do. And if, if you don't, you know, turn on, you know, whatever news network you want to, uh, trust me, yeah, that, take a big whiff. This, this country is incredibly divided. This world is incredibly divided right now. And people have their biases. And that's okay, right? If nothing else, the last two years have taught us that, we're very, very different, and that's okay. Jay, what about you? I totally agree. Um, you know, a lot of this has to do with, you know, raising a kid, every parent's going to do it differently as to what Leon was getting at and how they're going to interact. This is a fascinating kind of way of how do you catch yourself in the sense of you're raising your kids and, you know, making them see different, different aspects to different things. So, um, it's, it's, 
a very interesting and poignant kind of position is, you know, we learn to be parents and grow also with our kids. Fucking A. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking A, right, donkey. <laughs> I will, uh, I'm going to close this one with my thoughts on now what? Uh, because we have these discussions with point counterpoint and I don't want to leave it as kind of ambiguous what to do. I think the right way to do this from a parenting perspective is when you share an opinion with a child or a child observes your opinion and states it back to you. It's important that you say, that's my opinion. That is the way I see it. That is the way that's what your dad thinks because in my observation, the great tragedy of what happens when kids grow up is they think that one person's view is the view of the world when it's not such that they go out and they start making friends at school and they go, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. If you kind of indoctrinate in your children, no, that's my opinion because I'm your dad, but it's also important to know that I am one of many voices. I think that will help kids as they get older because at some point, their worldview is going to be shaped by their experiences external to you as parents. And you want to make sure that they're prepared for that. Because if they get out in the world and all they have is your opinion and they encounter a bunch of people that are opposite to that, it's going to create struggle at the easy side. And at the difficult side, it's going to create an identity crisis for them because if all of their friends don't think the way they do, it could be really conflicting yeah fucking a agree agree absolutely that wraps up parenting we'll be right back welcome back time for leon loads so far, Danny, I haven't heard a single logical reason. No, no, don't accept this. It's frustrating. And we haven't cured cancer. We have not cured cancer. I don't know the answer. I'm just ranting about it. I'm going to do this one calm tonight, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> For the opening. Yeah, that's true. I usually you're grow not, in you're my not frustration. Staying in band when you do it calm. Uh, okay, so I, I, I talked about it earlier on tonight the show Ted Lasso. And I don't think I'm spoiling it because I think there's a lot of uh, information out there about Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Apple TV. It's a wonderful show. And it's very, very different than any other show that's out there on television right now. And, and the main difference to me is it promotes and encourages positivity. And for the first time watching a show from start to finish, you feel good and you feel better at the end of the show than you did at the beginning. And then I got really fucking mad at myself because I realized how much garbage I watch and how much garbage I listen to that. And then I got mad at every producer out there and every news producer out there and every, cause for some reason, us as a society, because you know, I believe in free market, I believe in the invisible hand, I believe that what money goes to is what's going to drive more of that thing. Somehow, 
we are so dark as a society that we hand all our money and attention and interest into things that make us feel like pieces of shit all the time. You watch the news that makes you feel like a piece of shit. You clicked on the clickbait that goes, wow, that's a shitty person with a, he's a piece of shit. There's a lot of bleeping you're going to have to do after. I don't know. I don't know how this editing works, Danny, but <laughs> I'm, I'm already, I'm already sorry for you. You're on a roll. Go you, for it. You feel like a piece of shit. You watch pieces of shit. You go, you watch, you know, any of the housewives or anything on E and you're like, oh man, this person <laughs> train wreck. I feel better about myself instead of, actually having this whole the leave it to beaver mentality right that you go back 50 years ago and the shows were like there was a little bit of challenge here and there but at the end of the day they made the right decisions for the right reasons and everyone felt good at the end for some reason we thought well that's just bad entertainment we need edgy and all of a sudden edgy turned into shitty and we all turned into shitty fucking people so we watch these shows and we read these tweets and we we look at these instagrams that are always train wrecks always bad bad things one of the best shows out there for a long time i watched it and at the end of it i felt like a horrible piece of trash shameless have you seen it fantastic show great Showtime. acting Right. Showtime. Amazing. Uh, amazing acting. Nobody feels better after watching that show. Nobody does. You watch that and you feel like all of these people just took you through a roller coaster ride of garbage and soot. And it's, it's not because of their economic status that makes you feel bad. It's their poor decision making that they make over and over and over and over. And you just hope that somebody, something will make just one good decision. And you like latch onto that, like, Ooh, you know what? He's not so bad. And then nine other bad <laughs> things happen. And we just are okay with that. And we just have bought into this as entertainment and bought into this as I want to spend my free time watching fucking dumpster fires over and over and over. And I real I didn't realize it until I watched a show like Ted Lasso and said, I feel wonderful after watching this show. I feel good. And all I'm going to say on my loathes is I hope to God that it starts a new trend of that type of entertainment. Because you know what? It's possible. It's possible that people are good. You know why? I hang around with good people. I do. I Bad people, I separate out of my life. You are stressful. I don't like you. You bother me. Good people, <laughs> you enhance me. You challenge me. You make me a better person. You get to stay in this corner. But for some reason, shows, I'm like, you make, you challenge me. You make me feel like a piece of shit. I'm going to, I'm going to muscle through this. And by the way, it's okay to stop watching a show midway through if you don't like it. How many people do you know? They're like, you know, Breaking Bad's one of those. I know, I know, I know people are going to send a lot of angry mail in there. I started watching Breaking Bad because everyone told me to watch it. And I, you know, again, one of these movies that makes you feel or shows that makes you feel like a piece of shit and society is a piece of shit and ton of bad decision after bad decision compounding on each other over and over and over. You just sit there and watch the train wreck happen over and over and over. And I, I got into like season three, like, oh, that's when it really starts to pick up. I watched season three and then I'm like, I don't like this show. And thank God I just stopped watching it. I was like, ah, how did you stop watching it? Because I, I, I felt horrible at the end of it. 
every I'm exhausted. Sometimes I'm like sweating. Like, it's like, why, why did I watch this? That was an entertainment. I don't feel better about myself. Fucking TV. That's all I got. That's all I got. Okay, you want to uh, sound off on this loaf? Uh, I love Breaking Bad. I'm actually watching it for the third time. <laughs> yeah, I got I got a break from you, Leon. I like Breaking Bad. I I fucking love it. I'm sorry. I, and I I do get your point. Um, oh, I agree 100 with his point. I just thought his examples sucked. Yeah. No, it's suck. yeah. Like, he's a horrible Breaking human Bad. Being. He's doing. Not necessarily doing it for his family, man. He's got to provide. You guys got can't lung cancer. Keep what do you watching. Want to do? You're I, not deep enough in the show. He just continues <laughs> doing worse no, and worse I, things. No, no. I, I, I've watched it three times. Eventually, it kills people. And I, yes, I, I know. I think it's, it's a great entertainment show. But to your point, I think you're absolutely right. Everyone is stuck in this world of, oh, well, at least I'm not like Karen over there. Jesus. Um, has become the new norm where yeah yeah cathartic hate watch watching are good. yeah yeah it's it's like well i'm not as bad as so and so i get it um and I, I think this is one of the reasons why maybe we also tune out things that make us feel bad we leave social media we take time out we don't um we don't try to increase the negativity in our life and we try to look at the positive on certain things and i like show this to your point like i need to watch ted lasso or you know what's actually interesting and i don't know if you guys do this and i'll only add this is you bring up a big point you guys watch old shows uh bewitched it's free on netflix not netflix on uh if you have a roku if you have a roku device you can watch seasons of bewitched and because it's in the public a great domain. show it's in public domain and it's a great show. I mean, literally the actors are all passed away, believe it or not. Kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. But to your point, yeah, they make the right decisions in the show and it makes you feel good about it. And it's a good learning show. Um, we've been watching them with Dylan just hanging out. It's kind of fun. Um, so you probably pretty much get the same thing for some of the other early TV, but the shock jock genre today of we have, we're not doing it if we're not, you know, progressing or pushing the envelope is just wearing a lot of us after many years of, of what we've been going through is the divide in the country. So um, I think it's positive. Uh, maybe that's why we turn to sports. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sports is another way to, you can't, you can't deny sports in the sense of like, we have, we have passionate fans out there that dislike other fans out there, but at the end of the day, you are an American if you're following an American sport or whatever it is. So, um, sports is maybe where we kind of find ourselves in, uh, in some sense of a locked in disagreement, but one that ends at the end of the game, you give a handshake and we move on to the next one next week. I think that's an important point is the handshake at the end of the game. Cause there's people that don't want to do it. And my kids are about to start soccer soon. And that handshake is a key part of the game of this is a game. It starts and stops with the whistle. Go shake their hand. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Um, I I, like I want to take I want to take Leon's load this episode to its to its logical conclusion. There's an old adage in the news business called "If it bleeds, it leads," and the reason for that is because it appeals to our basest human natures. It appeals to the dopamine hit. It appeals to the processed sugar 
it appeals to the easy. And I think we've been going on easy for so long now that similar to when you break down and eat a whole tub of ice cream or you drink alone at night, mm-hmm. at some point you stop and you go, what did I just do? And I think that overindulgence regret applies to the types of media that we're consuming such that when something like Ted Lasso comes along, you go, wow, this is a really good show. And I feel good about myself and I feel good about humanity afterwards. And a conversation with the wife yesterday, because I binged all of the walking dead on Netflix and full disclosure, that's a great show. It's too fucking long. Mm-hmm. It's 16 episodes <laughs> per season. It's 45 minutes per episode. I can cut 40% of that show and nobody will miss it. It is too long. The other part about it is it prays to exactly what Leon's talking about. It is fucking heartbreaking. It goes at the worst human impulses. There is no happy news when the zombie apocalypse hits. There is no bright spot because eventually it all falls apart. And so the sense that there is actually some fun stuff that you can watch, the conversation we were having is the new season of Walking Dead just kicked off on AMC and the wife's like, you're going to watch it? I was like, no, I'm done. I'm taking a break. She's been watching the Gilmore Girls with uh, Lauren Graham and it's a happy, light, wonderful story of a single mom and her daughter and how they take on the world together. And she's like, I love it. I love it because it's light and I feel good about humanity and I feel good about myself. And I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I did appreciate it later. And then Leon's reinforcing that of perhaps it's time that we let the pendulum swing and got back to more positive entertainment. We've gone so, too far. Good on We've you. We've gone Leon. too far. Good on mm-hmm. you. Thanks. Whew, I'm exhausted. I want to take it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> If nothing else, I'm thought-provoking. All right. Well, we took our two-week hiatus and glad to see the vice hosts back in their chairs. We are, uh, we had so much show tonight that uh, I think this one will run a little bit longer than normal, but it was great to see you guys. And uh, as far as what we can expect next week, we got a lot more crank file. We got a lot more because Florida, We're going to tweak our headlines a little bit because we may be getting away from business, but we got plenty of Brown talk going on. And uh, I journeyed to France this week. I expect to journey to India next week in my around the Brown uh, global sojourn of trying to find other Browns. Liam, what about you? You got anything coming up? Uh, No, not really. A couple of weeks uh, from now, I will be uh, heading up to Coeur d'Alene. So I'm, I was actually trying to figure out if there was anything up there that I want to grab and bring back to the show, but nothing seems famous <laughs> from a whiskey perspective. So I'll keep looking for that. But uh, next week specifically, uh, Triple B keeps me on my toes. It seems like every week I, I have something really fun and interesting to try. So uh, I, I am not this cool. It's all Triple B. She's... <laughs> She is really good at scavenging the planet and trying to find these really rare, amazing bourbons out there. And uh, I'm a pretty lucky guy. So we'll see. I don't know what I'm going to have next week. 
Mr. Jones? I think it'll be a little bit more of the same. Don't really have anything. I Maybe if we're lucky, a Blood Oath Pack 6 shows up, but cross your fingers, who knows? It might show up, might not. It does. I'll present it. If it I does, will. you'll save me some. Ooh. <laughs> I, got, I got five waiting for you. All right. That was what was we were supposed to take that all to all. I still got the bottle all ready for us from when we bring any all three together again. Well, that'll ready. be a good time. So we'll go. do a live show. Oh, I do. A, we'll do what uh, Chris Hardwick calls a hostful. Yeah. I well, like it. I, I can't wait until we're on location in Kentucky. That's what I want to. When's that going to happen? Mm. The goal mm. is to try and get us to where if the world has gone somewhat back to normal, we have the means, the time, and the ability to go to the Whiskey Fest in San Francisco in December. That and if we can awesome. do a live broadcast from the Whiskey Fest, that will be the coup de grace for 2021. Mm-hmm. I love it. Gentlemen, good times. Great show. Looking forward to seeing you guys again. Get back in the saddle. See you next week. Uh, for those of you at home, you can email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. You can email Leon. You can email Mr. Jones. You can email Danny. You can also call us. We now have a phone line for the Bottle of Brown podcast, 602-529-4562. Leave us a message. If it's good, we'll play it on the show. If not, we'll simply answer any questions that you might have. That is all for tonight, gentlemen. Let's put a cork back in it. And see you next time. Till next week. Till next week. Same brown time. Same brown channel. My my glass is empty anyway. Bottleofbrown.com. Turn the lights off. <laughs> Click. This place is dead anyway, man.